Aside from being one of the greatest painters, Carrie James Marshall is also a fantastic public speaker. I learn something every time I hear one of his talks. The following talk took place at Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago. This is the White Hot Magazine Art World Podcast. I'm your host, Noah Becker. So, Prince (laughs) is suddenly dead. I'm going to say it again. (laughs) So, Prince is suddenly dead. And as the death of people who we believe are not supposed to die, has a tendency to do, it, it, it always has a way of bringing our own mortality into sharper focus. Uh, retrospective exhibitions <laughs> also have a way of marking passages and transitions of uh, one kind or another. And so, and looking back uh, at where you were and how you got to where you are, I mean, sometimes has the effect of producing a sense of melancholy uh, because there's always a sadness that accompanies uh, remembrance. especially when it's remembrance of times when you were much more, much younger, you know, perhaps more vital, um, and seem to have your whole future uh, ahead of you. Uh, and so, like everybody else, I was a young man once. LAUGHTER And this is a photograph that was taken in, at an exhibition in L.A. just uh, uh, on, uh, I can say on the eve of my departure for, from Los Angeles, uh, going to New York, where I had a residency at the Studio Museum in Harlem. Uh, and that transition from myself at about 28 or 29 in Los Angeles, going to New York, set in motion uh, all of the events and all of the activities that made it possible for me to get to this place I am today. So I spent almost three years in New York. I met the woman who was the love of my life, who brought me to Chicago. Her name was Cheryl Lynn Bruce. She was working as a PR representative at the Studio Museum when I got there. And oddly enough, was the very first person I met when I got to town. Um, and so, um, actually, this is a little out, a little out of order. And since we're looking back, uh, there are a lot of things that you reflect on when you're looking back. And one of the things you reflect on is how little things sometimes seem to change. So here's a collage I made in 1978. And the title of that collage was, They Have Come to Save Us and Now They Carry Out Aggressions Against Us. Um, 
And so th these kinds of reflections um, on the uh, past and, and then on the present, uh, where I'm sort of revisiting uh, the, the, that same idea, but in a much more subtle and maybe more complex way, where I'm more interested now, not only in my own reflection, but in the reflection of, the, of, of another subject. And so this, this, is, this is actually a very, a, a very recent painting, just finished in November of last year, uh, which has um, miraculously, since Dita was talking about miracles, <laughs> So it's miraculously found its way into the Museum of Modern Art, uh, where it now hangs. <laughs> but the, but the, the journey from there, from, from where I was in that photograph to the collage that I showed you to this, this, this particular painting, uh, we're going to uh, reminisce about a little bit through the slides that I'm going to show and some of the other images and some of the stories I might tell. So when I got to Chicago <clears throat> uh, in uh, December of 1987, uh, Cheryl and I had not yet married because we were gonna do that thing where you didn't live together until after you were married. <laughs> so I was in Chicago, I took up residence at the YMCA on 50th in Indiana. Because of course when I came to Chicago in 1987, I had two nickels hardly to rub together. Uh, and one, one of the things I found out when I was in New York is that you know, when you really have a hard time finding an apartment, and in New York it's hard to find an apartment, but when you have a hard time finding an apartment, the fallback place is always, the, the always ready fallback place was the YMCA. So when I was in New York, after I'd sort of uh, run out my lease on the sublet I had, I ended up living at the, the uh, YMCA on 135th Street. Uh, in Harlem, and that, that YMCA is famous for a lot of reasons, one of which is that Malcolm X was also a resident at that Y at one time, and in the barbershop of that YMCA, there's a great mural by Aaron Douglas. Uh, so when I came to Chicago, uh, having, uh, having gone through some of those transitions and then arriving in, and finding a place to live, so this, this, this room at the Y on 50th in Indiana was my, not only my living space, but my live workspace. This was my studio and home. <laughs> um, and that room was only six feet by nine feet. But, but the fact that I, I, I saw the possibility and felt the necessity to continue working no matter what kind of space I was in or whatever the circumstances I was operating under at the time, this says something about the kind of determination I think it takes in order to reach the place that I think I am right now. So my motto had always been as uh, always keep moving. Always keep moving. There's no circumstance under which your ambition and your desire should be curtailed because of social circumstances, political circumstances, or economic circumstances. And so my thing was you always find a way. <clears throat> and the only way you can sort of, I mean, success is perseverance more than anything else. And perseverance, what perseverance allows you to do is to continue working because you cannot make progress and you cannot develop unless you're working continuously. And so I always tried to find a way to keep going, to keep doing things, no matter where I was, and no matter what my circumstances were. And so that room I stayed in for almost three years. 
before we were married. And the transition on some level that allowed me to go from there to another place was that I was already promised the, the position of production designer on Daughters of the Dust, a film that was made by Julie Dash. <laughs> and so in 1989, they finally put together the, the, the financing to go down to South Carolina to shoot that film. And I was the production designer was down in, in, uh, in Saint, on St. Helena Island in South Carolina for 14 weeks, uh, you know, collecting material, building sets, and all that stuff. And the money that I made on Daughters of the Dust bought me a complete year of not having to have a job once I came back to Chicago. And using that money and making that work that I did in that year, that was the money I used to get a, uh, to apply for a national endowment for the arts grant. And I was doing all that work in the apartment that Cheryl and I were, were going to share together. Of course, I moved into it first because she was still staying at her mother's house. But when she arrived, that apartment looked just like that, <laughs> um, like that YMCA room. And the first thing she said was, well, "Where am I supposed to be?" <laughs> This looks like a studio. <laughs> uh, but, I, but the thing was, the, the, it's what the, what, the, what the ability to keep working and where I thought I could go if I kept working would get us seemed important enough to make that kind of sacrifice. And she made that sacrifice. So uh, I'm gonna, I, I got a lot of images I, I'm going to show. Uh, and I'm going to try to do most of it without a lot of commentary. And so we're going to pick up, so we're going to, we're going to, the whole process is going to be a backwards kind of, um, we're going to be going back in time. And so if you know, in the, in the exhibition upstairs, the, 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 the show ends with a series of abstract looking works. And I say abstract looking because they are not truly abstract works. Um, <clears throat> so those ink blot works and the uh, large uh, color field painting, uh, all of which on some level are supposed to be absent imagery. Uh, and with the absence of imagery, they're supposed to allow for a kind of transcendental experience, either in the color field of a, of a painting that's like the Barnett Newman painting, or to be lost in the kind of uh, uh, play of shapes and colors and textures and things in a, in a, a totally abstract looking picture. Uh, <clears throat> so. Uh, this one is, a, this is one of the paintings that's in that room. Um, this is another that's not there, uh, as well as this one, which is also not there. Um, now, when I say uh, not really abstract, I say that in part because these works are, the, the inkblot itself is not an abstraction, it's an object, it's an image, it's a figure. And it's a figure that we understand and that we know something about the function of. We know what ink blots are used for, and we know what they're supposed to look like because we know something about how they come to be uh, as a phenomena. Now, the difference between the way I approach these as blot images as opposed to as blots as phenomena is that all of my blots are completely constructed, and these blots are constructed in exactly the same way I use uh, in, in composing uh, any kind of other figurative painting. Because the figure itself is just simply a collection of shapes and lines and colors and textures as well. And so I'm thinking through these pictures and building into them a kind of relative symmetry 
that's not the absolute symmetry that we expect when we think about the ink blot as a, as a, a phenomena produced by folding a piece of paper uh, in half. <clears throat> so I'm going to go through, and, and so you'll see some of these things are here, but a lot of things that are in the slides are things that are not here, and they say something about the way in which retrospective shows operate. I mean, in a way, so the retrospective show doesn't, have, it never shows you everything because it can't. And so it leaves a lot of gaps and a lot of holes in, the, um, in, 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 in a particular grouping or uh, a body of work. Uh, and so one of the things you'll, you'll get a fuller sense of from this, the images I show now is how broad some of those uh, groupings of work actually are. Uh, and now, if you had unlimited space and unlimited money to, uh, to, to do shipping and things like that, then you could put together a proper uh, retrospective that maybe has like 1,500 objects in it. <laughs> <clears throat> but given uh, the limitations we have to operate under, uh, I'm supplementing with the slides. So these are works that you see there. <clears throat> and these are, these are among the more recent works uh, that I've done. Um, and there's something that's, for me, that's really important about the ways in which the works go backwards and forwards between, or flip back and forth between abstraction and, and representation. Um, in part because I had always, uh, there, there have been periods in which artists, and often in particular African-American artists, have avoided figuration. Um, <clears throat> because the black figure in particular exists as a kind of limitation that doesn't allow a spectator who is not black sometimes um, to get past the fact of its blackness and then see the work in the fullness of its aesthetic uh, complexity. And so in order to be seen often as a genuine mainstream artist, a lot of artists abandoned the figure and went for abstraction because there's no evidence in an abstract object, there's no evidence um, or even suggestion that the culture or class or race of the person who made it might have something to do with the fact that they made the thing in the first place. Uh, and so that was supposed to produce a kind of freedom in the absence of the figure. But my feeling had always been, and the reason on some level the exhibition is titled Mastery the way it is, is that all things should be in play at all times for everybody. <laughs> that there's no requirement to jettison the figure for abstraction in order to be seen as either aesthetic or complex. <laughs> that one, one has to do is to figure out how to make that image function pictorially, too. That is not just about the reproduction of the likeness of an image, but it's the way in which the image within a picture operates to help enhance and make more complicated the, image, the, the, the painting as an object. Um, and so I'm trying to demonstrate to, to the degree that I can That, all the, that, that, that it's the idea that's represented by the picture as an object itself that's more important than anything else. And so one of the reasons why the figures in my paintings are as black as they are is that that becomes a given. 
that once you, once you see the picture and you identify that figure as black as it is, then that's something you don't have to talk about anymore. It just is. <laughs> it becomes a fact of its existence. And then you can start thinking about it in relationship to everything else that's happening within the picture space. So I'm gonna, I'll go through a few, few other things. Um, as we go back in time, oops. <laughs> so, how'd that get in there? <laughs> So um, now, from that, from that array of images I showed just a little while ago, um, a, a certain kind of sensibility, I think, can be determined. Um, and one is that in no, in, in, in no instance in which those pictures, uh, in the pictures you saw, uh, was there anything sensational about the picture beyond, if you want to argue, the, 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 the fact of the blackness of the figures in it. In every one of those images, this, the, the, the circumstance under which the, the figure is operating within the picture presents a kind of normality, a kind of normalcy, even a kind of mundane kind of uh, aspect of the existence of the figure in its space. And in, in some ways, it's that normality you know, that lack of sensationalism, the ordinariness of the image, even in its extraordinariness, that's really at the heart of what I'm trying to do. <clears throat> because, in its, because a part of the goal is to make the presence of that figure in its extreme a commonplace. So that is no longer out of the ordinary or the exception to the rule that when you encounter pictures in museums that you won't encounter a picture like that. This is a part of the whole project I think I've been uh, engaged in since the 1980s when I produced the painting that begins the show, a portrait, uh, a portrait of the artist as a shadow of his former self. Um, now this painting is, is based in part on <laughs> Uh, so you see that crown that that figure wears is the crown. This is Gloria Smith, who was the second Miss Black America from 1968, uh, second Miss Black America pageant. And this was so in the, the Miss Black America pageant, we know came into existence because they didn't allow black women in the Miss America pageant. And so as an alternative to being shut out completely and not have any sort of framework in which you can conceive the idea of blackness and beauty at the same time, uh, <clears throat> an alternative pageant was created and it was to be held on the same stage, on the same runways in Atlantic City that the Miss America pageant was supposed to be held on when it was first started. Uh, so anyway, <clears throat> um, one more in a group. I, did a, I had an exhibition at the David Werner Gallery in London in uh, October of 2014, and the 
The idea of that show uh, with its title was, the title was Look See. And it really was about looking and seeing and about, wanting, about uh, seeing oneself, the, presenting oneself to be seen, presenting oneself to be photographed, and also being uh, looked in upon uh, uh, by someone who might be an intimate uh, of the person because the space that you as a spectator would be occupying is the space in which uh, somebody who is familiar uh, would be in. Um, now, this, this next image, uh, I mean, it, it has value because it, it, it represents something. So this is, this is the cover of the, uh, the African art collection from the Manila collection. That object in the Manila collection, when I first saw that, I thought this is one of the most beautiful things I had ever seen, period. Leave it at that. <laughs> um, and I'm going to show a, 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 a couple of abstract paintings um, only because, <clears throat> I mean, on the, on the one hand, so who is that didn't turn their phone off when the man asked him to turn the phone off? <laughs> um, so why do I, I, I show these? Um, uh, because they say something about the way in which I structured my project and the whole project of representation in, the, in, 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 in total. So if on the one hand, um, the figures I developed are trying to speak to uh, ideas of presence and ideas of absence. And that one of the things I am also engaged in is an examination of the art historical record as it relates to the presence and absence of a black figure representation in the kind of canonical pantheon of painting uh, and that I chose the image that I did because I thought that image would have the greatest impact on that canonical uh, record because the, because the thing you are least likely to see when you go to the museum is a figure that's black. That's the least likely thing you're to see. And so if that's the case and I want my work to have the maximum impact, then that would, be the, that would seem to be the most obvious approach to take. Now, in abstraction, what are the issues in abstraction? I mean, on some level, it's surface, it's color, it's texture, it's scale, it's shape, it's all those things. And you can do 1,000 of those. And if you put another one in the middle of that, it has no effect on what people expect to see when they come to see another group of things that are sort of like that. So since I'm trying to get the maximum impact, and what I'm really wanting to do is to change people's expectations of what they're likely to see when they go to the museum, figuration has the greatest potential to do that. Abstraction adds another abstraction on top of another abstraction on top of another abstraction. And all of them don't, they, they don't give you much that's different from what a lot of other people who are doing abstraction are doing. And as a consequence, it kind of doesn't matter if you got 20 or if you got 10. It's going to give you a similar effect. I see people starting to.
Somebody's going to ask about that later. <laughs> now, I'm going deeper. <laughs> I'm going to go a little deeper into the, into the hole. <laughs> so, <clears throat> I, 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 would, I would wager that there's probably nobody in this audience who could tell me who those people are. <laughs> Huh? So, well, <laughs> these are, so these are 12 men who walked on the moon. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> and so, and, and that's, that's quite an achievement. <laughs> Not only did they walk on the moon, <laughs> But if you look in the background, they got a car up there they took with them and they drove around. <laughs> um, and so, and, and so, I, so this is, that picture is there bec <laughs> primarily because, um, I mean, in, in the history of space travel, we have somehow managed to organize our interests around achievements that are not one-fifth as significant as the ability to do that thing, to get to the moon, to take a car, and to drive around on it, and then come back home. <laughs> and so there's something about the capacity to do that that matters. <laughs> In the same way that the reason why my show is called Mastery, there's something about the capacity to do all these things that matters. Not so much what you do. It's like, I don't, we don't know what they did while they were riding around. We do know they picked up some rocks <laughs> and sent them back. They picked up a little dirt and brought it back. But that's not the achievement. The rocks and the dirt are not the achievement. The ability to get there <laughs> is the achievement. And, the, and for me, the independent capacity to do that same kind of thing matters more than anything else. It's like if you never get a chance on, to work on something like that, then there are certain things you actually never get a chance to think about. And out of that, there are certain other kinds of outcomes that you can never produce because you never had to go through this sort of process. I mean, this reminds me of a, of a, of a, of a critique of Richard Wright in uh, Kabina Mercer's uh, collection of essays, Welcome to the Jungle, in which he criticizes Wright for, for saying that he had arrived at philosophical conclusions and assumptions that it seemed to have taken uh, academic uh, philosophers a whole lot of energy and a whole lot of effort to do without having to read anything to get to it. Now, as Kabina Mercer said, this is dangerous thinking. <laughs> I mean, the sort of notion that you kind of naturally arrive at things without having to put in any effort for it. Not, certainly not having to put any intellectual effort into it, not having to do any research, not having to do any calculations. That this is, as far as he's concerned, is dangerous. And it's especially dangerous for people who have been subjugated, <laughs> enslaved, or otherwise colonized. So, 
Um, it, it, this sort of takes me somewhere near the beginning uh, with, this, with this picture, uh, which is based in part on uh, a reading of Ralph Ellison's book, Invisible Man. Uh, uh, and what, you will, what you, you will find out in my approach to making artworks is that that challenge that I think could be an immersive with leveling, that you, that you don't rely on sort of quote unquote natural ability or talent, that when you're engaged in a world as complex as the world we are engaged in, that you go at it with, you go in, at it self-consciously, analytically, and always intellectually. Uh, and so what this work means for me, um, and what it, what it was, was, was the moment in which I figured out uh, how to start using the idea of blackness as a rhetorical device, the black as a rhetorical figure, and as a linguistic figure within the context of, uh, of a classical idea about what it takes to make a painting or what it takes to make a picture. And so what's important about that picture is that everything that I felt like I had learned from examining and analyzing and studying uh, classical <laughs> Renaissance painting, in particular classical Italian Florentine painting, uh, I used that to make that picture so that every element of the picture was, was, was uh, placed precisely in its shape, in its direction, in its orientation to another thing that was happening in the picture. So it has all of that material and all that information in it, but doesn't look anything at all like a Raphael painting. <laughs> and that was really important for me, that you could deploy the knowledge and the, in, and the principles, but it didn't have to turn out looking like something that you'd copied from somebody else. Uh, anyway. Uh, I'm, so that, this painting is upstairs too, and so it, it's just, it's a, it's a kind of a visual pun. Since, there, since you already know the, the other painting is titled Portrait of the Artist as a Shadow of His Former Self, then this is just the Portrait of the Artist in a Vacuum. <laughs> and it's, that, it's, the, it's the intonation of using the ampersand as uh, uh, um, what is the, the audio kind of figure, but it's the sound that matters. And in sounds, in a, artists in a vacuum and a vacuum, those two things sort of sound a lot alike. Um, and so that's part of the, it's just a, a, a pun, a visual joke. Uh, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through um, um, a couple of things. Uh, so this, this uh, a lot of the paintings I do, I mean, I think of, I think of almost everything I do in, in, in fairly instrumental terms. Uh, you know, after that moment when you saw me in that photograph earlier where I was standing next to a drawing of mine that was just a kind of landscape with two tornadoes in it, um, once, I f once I really understood what the, some of the mechanisms of art history was, my whole approach to everything changed, and I started treating everything strategically. 
And then everything was about a kind of idea and about an idea of a relationship between a painting and its object and its subject and the museum as an institution and art history as a kind of institutional, uh, legit, as, as institutional legitimacy. Uh, and since, I mean, we know that the way art, in, art museums operate uh, has a lot to do with accumulations of large quantities of excess capital Um, you just take 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 a take a, a, a glance at those auction records that are being set by artworks now. You know it's like they're not going down to the corner store uh, buying some artworks that end up in museums. Not often. Um, and since the black population in the United States has always been undercapitalized as a population, without access to the cap capacity to generate capital and without levels of excess capital <laughs> to spend on things like artworks, especially when it gets past a certain threshold. <laughs> so the likelihood of artworks being bought by black collectors gets slimmer and slimmer and slimmer. <laughs> the more well-known, the more famous, and the higher the prices of the artworks that are being made go. <laughs> and so in a way, uh, there's a kind of irony <laughs> in a picture like this uh, that says, that announces that it is black owned. Uh, and the reality is this is not black owned. <laughs> the, the person that bought that painting is not a black person. <laughs> and even if you encourage black people to buy black, <laughs> you are thwarted. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And so um, now you, you'll start seeing varieties of, of things too. So uh, <laughs> this is, this is uh, 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 a piece that's kind of based on the, the Donald Judd sort of boxes uh, called Ladder of Success. And it conflates a series of, 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 of historical ideas that people uh, might have come in contact with. I mean, there's, there, there are lots of philosophies of, of success in terms of how your what kind of character you should have, what kind of personality, all those kinds of things. And those things have been enumerated over the, over the centuries. Um, you, can, you can say Dale Carnegie's How to Win friend and Friends and Influence People is a part of that sort of uh, idea of how do you, 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 you self-consciously put yourself in a position where you might be more successful than not. Um, <coughs> Uh, and so this does this this is based on a, 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 a chart that I'd pulled out of a history book that uh, outlined these steps to success, you know, which is punctuality, uh, uh, honesty, you know, um, oh, I can't remember all of them, uh, persistence, prudence, all those things you step up and then uh, insert at the top of that the uh, the uh, Principles of Kwanzaa, <laughs> you know, Kuchi Chakalia, <laughs> uh, Umoja. All, you know, it's like all of the, the principles of Kwanzaa that were supposed to, for black people, give a pathway to success as well. Um, now, that plus the painting that's upstairs, you can see this one up there. Um, you see how they, they have a relationship to uh, a, a, an art historical model but they do something different than that model does. 
I mean, in both the, the case of the Donald Judd and the case of this Barnett Newman painting, uh, the Barnett Newman painting being uh, titled uh, Who's Afraid of Red, Yellow, and Blue. So I did a suite of paintings that sort of uh, invert that in a way. It says, Who's Afraid of Red, Black, and Green? Uh, and rather than being just a pure color field painting uh, that's supposed to generate this transcendental effect because you're so engulfed by the color it's, itself and the, the expanse of the picture um, that you're supposed to have a kind of disembodied experience. Uh, I always have to find a way to root the thing firmly in uh, the reality of the world we live in. And so I, as I took apart the uh, Barnett Newman painting, and, so, and this is exactly the same size as the Barnett Newman painting, it's nine feet by 18 feet. Exactly the same size. I made three paintings, and each one of those paintings privileged one of those colors as the one of the red, black, and green colors as the as the central color of the picture. And so this first one is a text painting, and you can read it when you get upstairs. It says uh, if they come in the morning, you know, which is based on a book that Angela Davis put together of uh, letters from political prisoners. Uh, but the and the phrase is a phrase she borrowed from an open letter that James Baldwin wrote to her when she was in jail. Uh, so, all, so it's the way in which these poetics and politics and the experience of a kind of transcendental space in the picture, all of these things, I'm trying to balance all those things and make all those things operative simultaneously. So this is, again, presence and absence. I'm never interested in total absence. I'm not interested in erasure. I'm interested in negotiations, and the negotiations are things that have to happen in the moment, in real time, with real people you know, against the backdrop of real events. And so it's the way in which the way you meditate on a thing uh, is, is, to me, should always be informed by the moment in which you live uh, and the history that got us here. So uh, the second painting is a, is a black color, a black field. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, in the slides, there are things you can't see. So and they, the, the whole thing sort of functions as a triptych, basically. And then the green one, so the privilege is the green. Um, and then history uh, always has a place in our consciousness. Um, and where there are no representations of figures who have a place in history, I tend to produce something that gives those figures a representation. So and there, there are four paintings in this suite called the Stono Group. And if you know, the Stono Rebellion was one of the earliest uh, slave rebellions in the United States in the 18th century, you know, not a little while before. Um, Nat Turner and everybody, and Denmark Vesey and everybody, but in, uh, it took place in, in South Carolina, and it, it, had, it came close to being the most successful uh, slave revolt, except for <laughs> a fatal flaw. Uh, and the fatal flaw ultimately was a belief that they had a right to fight for their freedom like anybody else had a right to fight for their freedom. And, and so what they did as they were starting to amass more troops in the cause, they made some flags, <laughs> they had some banners, they were hitting, beating drums and marching down the highway, <laughs> 
on their way to St. Augustine, Florida, because the Spanish had uh, put out a notice that any slave who could escape to St. Augustine would get their freedom. Now, on their march from South Carolina down to St. Augustine, they took a break. Uh, and while they were having a party, <laughs> really, it gave the uh, forces and the authorities time to catch up, and there went the whole project. Uh, so the leader of that uh, rebellion was a man named uh, Cato, or Jimmy, so also known as Jimmy. And so I just I made the representation of these figures. Uh, and literally, I mean, they had said at standing at the gallows at dawn, and from painting to painting to painting, you'll see the lights. The day starts to break as you go from one figure to the next figure, um, and so the light changes. <laughs> um, you can, you'll see them better upstairs. You can't see them so well on. At least I can't see them so well on the slide. But anyway. But this is a, also the way in which I sort of use history uh, as a point of meditation, not as an illustration of an event. Uh, in the same way that this figure, John Punch, uh, <clears throat> who is, the, is, is a figure around which the um, permanent enslavement of black people in the United States was kind of uh, in, in, uh, implemented. Because we know that John Punch was, was an indentured servant in the 18th century. He, along with two white indentured servants, ran off from the, the man they were working for. Uh, when they were caught, the two white guys got five or six years added to their term of indentiture, but John Punch was made a slave for the rest of his life. And then they started to construct the laws around which the black, sub, the black enslaved would always be permanently enslaved. And so there's no picture of John Punch, but there's reference to John Punch in the historical narrative. And so I thought we need to know, we need to be able to put that idea in that moment with somebody, you know, that, that he was a real person. Uh, in the same way uh, that David Walker, people who know uh, David Walker's appeal to the colored citizens of the United States, to the citizens of the United States, uh, of New York, in, and in particular, uh, the colored citizens of the United States. So David Walker, another sort of prototypical uh, rebel, a free man who uh, engaged in uh, subversive activities uh, in the hopes of inciting a slave insurrection uh, that would ultimately result in the freedom of uh, vast numbers of black people. And so his, the book he wrote, uh, David Walker's Appeal, is fundamentally a critique of the, de of the uh, Declaration of Independence and the hypocrisy he sort of uh, uh, outlines uh, uh, as it relates to the condition of black people. Uh, and then there's, uh, of course, the famous uh, Nat Turner, which ev who everybody knows about. Um, and I... I mean, and it's, it's interesting, so the controversy around Nat Turner has everything to do with the levels of violence uh, that were uh, enacted during the slave rebellion. And it's a way in which these kind of narratives of heroism uh, are often denied uh, to the black population that had been enslaved when you can sort of go through the sort of myth mythic narratives of, of, uh, of liberation um, elsewhere 
in history and in uh, the Bible where, I mean, a certain amount of violence seems necessary to the liberation of a people. <laughs> so anyway, that's uh, Nat Turner with the head of his master. <laughs> um, um, and then I'll, I'll, I'll show a few things because I don't want to get too uh, far along because um, it's 3 o'clock already. My goodness. <laughs> Um, so, anyway, uh, some pictures that are not in the show. Great America. Uh, colorblind test. <laughs> I did a group of paintings based on the red-green colorblind test, you know, so. Um, you know, the Rhythm Master Comic Project. This is the first iteration of the Rhythm Master Comic Project in, in uh, Pittsburgh at the Carnegie International. Uh, there's some comic images, uh, the pantheon of characters. Um, you'll see that image as a part of a thing up there. But the, and the thing that's important, so the, the Rhythm Master sort of began uh, in the corridors, in the African art corridors at the Art Institute of Chicago. I mean, that's where most of those things, most of them were set uh, in the museum at first. Uh, but the narrative overall is set against the backdrop of the demolition of public housing projects uh, when they started the plan for transformation in Chicago. Um, and so this is actually a scene, you know, they moved the, the, uh, the, the African galleries finally got what you could call proper galleries uh, when they did the renovation and added the, uh, the uh, new wing to the, to the Art Institute. And so, but there was a period when they were just sort of moving it around. It was in the basement one <laughs> somewhere, and you walk in there, and then there'd be a sign saying it's not here any longer. You go down the hall, and there'd be something that said, coming soon, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and so you could be wandering through the museum looking for the African art collection. It just wasn't on display. <laughs> uh, so I just did something about that. <laughs> just, um, <laughs> Anyway, it's a long story. <laughs> um, everything will be all right. I just know it will. <laughs> um, but uh, so, and here, I mean, these are these are puppets. These are puppets that are that are based on the Rhythm Master project. So I did a I did a puppet show, puppet performance at the Wexner, um, and using uh, Bunraku. Uh, as a puppet form, a Japanese puppet form that is, was one of the most incredible things I had ever seen. Uh, and so I was so taken by that style of puppet performance where it take, it's three puppeteers operating that one puppet that's about a third life size. Uh, you have um, the master who operates the head and the right hand you have somebody who operates the left hand, then you have a puppeteer who operates just the feet. And all three of them are there together. <laughs> you see everybody, <laughs> except the two assistants are wearing a black hood so you can't see their face, while the master's fully exposed and in this regalia with this like silver and shimmering kind of <laughs> outfit like a superhero. <laughs> but anyway, so I, made, I did this puppet, a puppet show that was based on the Rhythm Master. Um, and so these are some of the puppets I made. And there, again, those Rhythm Master characters, um, Bo Bun Rak, Bun Raku. <laughs> um, 
Prince, Prince, Prince. That's one of those up there. Collages. That painting you'll see in the show, uh, Pin Up. Uh, a, a big painting that's sort of like, there's, there are two paintings up there, Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, but this was a painting, that little piece of paper says, prettiest girl in the whole wide world. Uh, and the Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, uh, nude in the spotlight. I, I gotta move kind of quickly here. Um, um, a, a flag with a pinup, it's another pinup image. That one you'll see upstairs if you haven't already, a black star, black star. <laughs> um, Scipio Moorhead. Um, if we have a, a few minutes to say anything about it in Q&A, I will, but I don't think we have a whole lot of time now. And then there's a series of paint, uh, portraits of painters. Um, there, there are, I think, two or three in the show. Yeah, there are three in the show, but not this one. <laughs> um, that one's there, not that one, <laughs> um, not that one. This was actually in a show at the Met now. But uh, one of the things that I was doing with these, uh, in particular, with these, is that you, this is also a way that within a, within a single picture you can have a conversation about abstraction and representation simultaneously, where the palette itself sort of functions as a, as a mode of abstraction um, within a picture that's about representation, but is also about the way in which systems of representation operate in, way, in the way in which you can sort of uh, contradict or go against the, the implied uh, logic of the system. And so, what's, so if you have a painter, a, a, a self-portrait by a painter, painting the self-portrait, but that self-portrait is rendered as a, as a paint-by-number painting, except the way in which the color is being applied is arbitrary, then it talks about all of those things to, at, at one time. Um, and so this, this is just sort of how I, how I go about doing what I do. So that painting on the easel is this painting. <laughs> but, of course, it doesn't correspond in any way at all with the, space, with the figure that's outside the picture that's being painted. So it's, it's the way in which all these things sort of work. Um, that painting is upstairs. Um, the painting in honor of Beryl Wright, who was the first black curator who worked here at the MCA. Um, um, vignette. And then there's a whole series of vignettes that take as, a, as their point of departure uh, this sort of Rococo uh, uh, model of a kind of uh, joy, pastoral romance, and all those things. Um, and you, so if you take the Fragonard painting, you know. Um, and then there's a, this is a suite of five paintings that are over there in the collection at the Art Institute now. And so in this, this group of paintings, it's, it's an, it's, it's an animation, so there are five panels, and, it, and you see the 360 rotation of that figure, <laughs> where each, each one of those is 
different. <laughs> um, and then various other, I'm going to keep going. <laughs> uh, collage again. Um, And then uh, uh, also, I mean, it's, it, paintings that are sort of about being paintings that are commodified and, and available for purchase. <laughs> Red Hot Deal. <laughs> um, low, low price. <laughs> and then upstairs, you'll see that the black painting up there, On Sale Black Friday. <laughs> it's up there. And then so, the, now, as sculptures, so those coins on the, on the floor um, are, a, are a, 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 a dis, what you would call a dispersal piece of, as, as sculpture. Uh, it's, it's, the title of it is the 99 cent piece. And it's 99 cents in change, you know, three quarters a dime, two nickels, and four pennies uh, gilded. But the, and those quarters are five feet in diameter. And they, the whole project is rendered with the, with the detail, the maximum amount of detail you would see it, if you had that quarter as a brand new quarter. And so, but the idea, but a part of the whole, this whole, that whole show, that whole exhibition had a lot to do with the way in which we understand the value of things and the arbitrary relationship between uh, the image of, the image that's represented and the object as it's uh, to be purchased. And so the 99 cent piece, the, the, uh, the alternate title of it is, it's, it's the 99 cent piece, AKA $136,000 in change. <laughs> uh, because it costs $136,000 to make it. And so that, but that says something about, so that, that $136,000 is a barrier that a lot of people who want to make some stuff can't cross to get those things made. And since if you, um, for people who, who know uh, Cecil Taylor, <laughs> the jazz musician, there's a great documentary film on Cecil Taylor called Imagine the Sound. You should check it out. And in there, he, he's, he's, uh, he's interviewed by somebody in there who asks him if he's bitter uh, because other people who were, were, were cashing in on innovations that he had developed while he seemed to be overlooked as far as the money was concerned. And his reply was a reply that I think you know, is, is worth taking to heart. You know, and, and so Cecil Taylor says, well, you know what? No, I'm not bitter because nobody asked me to do this. Nobody asked me to do this. And one of the things about making artworks, uh, one of the things you're trying to achieve is a certain level of freedom and liberation to do what you want, independent of anybody else's interest in that thing. So I made this thing because I just wanted to see what it looked like. But what made it possible for me to do that thing and not have to ask anybody's permission to do it was that all of the work that I'd done from the time I left that room at the Y up to this moment 
uh, put, my, put me in a position where I had the kind of capital that would allow me to take the kind of risk to do something that nobody asked me to do. To me, that's complete freedom. The freedom to do whatever you want without having to ask permission and without fear of the consequences. So if nobody buys that, it doesn't really matter. But what I, what I learned or what I saw from having done it is hugely important for me. Um, so anyway, uh, you know those little draw me things you see in the magazines sometimes. <laughs> and I had, so my, all, my nephews, <laughs> um, I let them go at it <laughs> on the picture one day. They all wanted to do it. And, and my wife Cheryl did one too. <laughs> so everybody had a chance. <laughs> uh, so anyway, let me go. Um, through a couple of things, and then I'll, I'll be finished. Um, an installation that was at Monique Meloche. Um, that painting you'll see upstairs. This one you'll see upstairs. Uh, more of the vignettes, but instead of black and white vignettes, these are vignettes that were in color. <laughs> um, that one you'll see upstairs. Uh, this one you won't. <laughs> uh, neither that one. But you'll see that one. You'll see this. You won't see this. <laughs> um, um, so, and, and this is there. This is not. Uh, the Lost Boys. Um, the style the beauty shop, the scouts, and the scout master and den mother, which aren't, aren't there. <laughs> the garden project paintings, bang, our town. Uh, a big woodcut I did that's about 48 feet long. <laughs> um, and then that suite of mementos paintings, uh, all of which were, were based on the living rooms of uh, People I know, so this is my wife's great aunt's house down on 127th and Wallace. She's no longer, she's no longer living so I can give out the address. <laughs> she's no longer there. Uh, my mother-in-law's best friend um, who just passed away last year. Uh, she used to live in Hyde Park. Uh, um, th this one that's upstairs, that's my mother's living room in LA. Um, and then there was a, a series of smaller paintings that went with it. Uh, because that, and then uh, another kind of a souvenir, because that show I did for the Renaissance Society in which those mementos paintings was in, uh, was about commemoration, about how we commemorate a moment in time, how we commemorate the 1960s as a decade. Uh, and this is, the, this is a, a commemorative vase with artificial flowers, a cluster of things called As Seen on TV. Uh, and it's based on, it's, that cross is the cross that's on 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham. Um, and so, and then little sort of fetish-like objects where I took the continent of Africa, cut it up, and reassembled it as a cubist sculpture, and then added add things to it. Uh, you'll see uh, heirlooms and accessories upstairs, some photographs, not that one you won't see, but uh, black painting and this black photograph. Um, so, and, and this black Christmas. 
Uh, and they are, they are called that because these are photographs that were taken under black light. So again, it's this presence and absence as a kind of phenomena in which the condition of the, the light that you use determines the condition or the quality of the photograph because that's what all photographs are, is a kind of registration of the way in which light reflects from an object and can be uh, captured on a piece of film. Um, <clears throat> same thing, that's um, my wife, Cheryl, as a kind of odalisque. <laughs> and then the, the last photograph is, the, is uh, called Black. <laughs> and it's the photograph of the Johnson's Publishing Building taken at night from Lakeshore Drive. And so you have Ebony and Jet, <laughs> which are two of the darkest degrees of blackness. <laughs> and so, I, so I'm going to stop here uh, as far as showing images are concerned and, and say, I mean, really, so looking back over all these things I've done uh, and, and the impact they have had on my life and maybe the encouragement they've given to other people who want to make images, um, and the way in which I've managed to find a place in a lot of the major museums in the country um, is in a lot of ways more than I ever expected to achieve. Because all along the way, uh, there was always this other part of my, at, at the same time that I had this, this uh, you know, fairly uh, extreme sense of self-confidence, um, there were always doubts. There were always doubts. And these doubts come from the fact that most museums, most institutions, they have done quite well without the presence of black people for hundreds of years. <laughs> the people who go to work in them don't arrive at the office saying, well, where am I going to find some black people today? <laughs> and because none of these works I'm making are done by commission, that I'm doing them as a kind of speculation. Um, it's always a 50-50 chance that you will find an audience who's not asking for that interested in that. And so I persevered against what I thought were uh, overwhelmingly uh, uh, chancy odds. <laughs> uh, and on some level, I think I lucked out. And I find myself standing here at the MCA for a second time <laughs> yeah, with an exhibition upstairs. So. All right, thank you. Uh, well, now, if there, if there are any questions, uh, you can ask a couple, and then uh, uh, Dita will take you upstairs, and you can see the show if you haven't seen it. And, yes. Um, we, have, we have microphones. We'll do about 10 minutes of Q&A. My colleague Ann and I have microphones, so if you can raise your hand, we will run up so that everyone can hear the question. <laughs> um, yeah. 
My name is Khalil Robert Irving, and I'm a Chancellor's Graduate Fellow at Washington University in St. Louis. Traveled here overnight to see this lecture and see this exhibition. Thanks I want to say coming. thank you. Your work and your word has a, an amazing impact on my life and what I do in my studio. But I have a couple questions. Uh, one starting, you know, we're looking back and you're sharing your work and your life and your trajectory. And I was wondering if you could talk about your work looking towards the future, looking forward, maybe starting from the, the policeman image. Mm -hmm. And my second question is, knowing all that you do now, what are you willing to share with young artists, young black artists working today to help them persevere and challenge the narrative for the future? Oh, the, so the, the first part, um, uh, looking forward from the policeman. Well, so here's the thing. I mean, there are more things that I want to do than I'm going to have time to get to. <laughs> that I know. <laughs> um, uh, and so uh, one of my, for me, I mean, everything I, since I, I said earlier that everything I do, I, I, I think of in instrumental terms, in terms of what kind of work that thing can do in the world. Um, and since I'm always, uh, yeah, we are, we are always confronted by uh, areas of absence in which the kind of full participation of all the people that you can encounter in the world is not, um, you, can't take, you, can, you can't take it for granted. Um, so um, in the realm of comics, so the reason I, the reason I started the, the Rhythm Master Project in the first place is that there, there are really very few um, black superhero narratives in particular, black superhero narratives created by black comic book creators uh, that have that can claim the kind of authority that the Marvel and DC pantheon of superhero characters can claim. So everybody knows Superman, everybody knows Batman. Now, because you watch TV, everybody knows the Flash. And when the next round of movies after the Superman v. Batman comes out, you're going to know Wonder Woman and Aquaman and all those figures. And then you're going to get your, um, the, the remaining um, um, uh, characters from the Marvel uh, bullpen coming to life. So we all know the Hulk and all that stuff. And so you have, so uh, to the degree that, that uh, for a, a black kid looking at comic books, they don't have any model that demonstrates that another black person can create a character that would be as compelling as those. That was one of the reasons why I, I started doing the Rhythm Master Project in the first place. And so the goal for that project is, is that once the narrative is sort of uh, organized, it can be rendered as a graphic novel. And then from the graphic novel, it needs to be an animated feature film. And, and an animated feature film that has the same scope uh, that we attribute to the Star Wars uh, saga. 
I mean, it's got to be, I mean, it's like you got to be imagining things at the top end of the spectrum. And so, and it's got to be something that you can, I mean, the way that, the way sequels to Spider-Man are built, <laughs> the way sequels to Batman and sequels to Superman, the way sequels to all these movies, you got to create a, you, you got to create a structure or a platform on which you can build sequel after sequel after sequel. Um, and it's the only way you can sort of generate uh, a narrative effect that will linger in the culture in the way these do. And that can have the same kind of, uh, um, not only longevity, um, but the ability to, to, to operate across the globe. <clears throat> so America, it's like most of the money that American action movies make are made overseas. And that's because those stories of heroism are easily transported. <laughs> Um, but if you, but my thing is that everybody, so the, 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 there has to be a more dynamic mix. <clears throat> Everybody's got to be in the game. <laughs> I mean, and, and, and that will require understanding something about the way in which blockbusters like that get made and what the secret to the longevity of things like um, Marvel Comics, Spider-Man, you got to know something about what makes those work. Um, and so my advice to young people is, is um, on the one hand, to be hyper-ambitious, to be hyper-ambitious, uh, and to, to construct a, 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 uh, an artistic practice that you are uh, confident that you are driving, uh, that you're not sitting around waiting for somebody else to recognize that you have some kind of greatness or something worthwhile in it, that you're, you're constantly trying to build it and project it. I mean, and that you should be projecting it. Not, you're not waiting for somebody else to figure out. And so if you, if you take the whole, uh, and the thing is like, and you never stop working. You should be working every day. <laughs> You know, I have a friend, so Arthur Jaffer is a friend of mine who was the cinematographer on Daughters of the Dust. And when I first met him, it was in the era when people were still shooting a lot of Super 8 film. And he, he told me in the beginning, when we first met, he said, you know what, so in order to really become, become uh, um, sensitive to the way in which the film captures an image, uh, that you, should, you have to expose film every day. And so I carried a Super 8 camera in my pocket every day with me. And every chance I got, I was exposing some film and, and processing it and then looking at it. And then as you do that more, and I said, there's a friend of mine, Dawood Bey, sitting out in the audience as a photographer. He, that man never, <laughs> he is never without a camera, never without a camera. Yeah, you are always shooting. Because always shooting, that means you are accumulating information that will inform things you don't know you want to do yet. <laughs> so always be shooting. Always be drawing. Always be painting. That's, I mean, and then you, you have to want something. Want something. And then name it. Name the thing that you want. Because if you don't name it, you can't go after it. So you got to name it. So anyway, that's my. <laughs>
You're listening to the White Hot Magazine Art World Podcast. I'm your host, Noah Becker.